Welcome to the 99 Topics for the CCFP Exam podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brady Bouchard. So what are we talking about today? I think we're talking about, we're blasting through the world of prevention. Yeah, prevention, periodic health assessment, exactly. screening is what the topic is, but uh, yeah. And it's kind of interesting because didn't the pe- periodic health exam sort of get slammed as opposed to, you know, in terms of, you know, the annual physical exam? You know, we remember from years gone by, you go to your doctor for your annual checkup, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, that disappeared. It, it, it was kind of interesting because it's well before my generation, but I mean, it seemed to be really in vogue. Um maybe I'm guessing like kind of the seventies and eighties and a really big thing. And, you know, everybody kind of trained on it for you know, a while decades and, and trained patients on it. Exactly. And we left people with the notion that you had to see your doctor every year for some reason or so. Yeah. And, and yeah. instead of emphasizing, and you know, it's not to criticize or so it was just sort of what we did in medicine back then, instead of critic, instead of applying, well, what are the evidence-based screenings? And is it better to have these screenings in an episodic way or plan a visit around these screenings? Because it may not be necessarily once every year, but we sort of have the notion of the annual physical examination. You know, when I speak to my parents, you know, they, 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 they would say that, you know, go to your doctor once a year, you know, or you might die. And I mean, like they find stuff. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I, th- I understand even physicians who still want to have it because there, I, I think there is some value in in seeing your patients once a year. Oh, yeah. Having a, a basic, you know, preventative health um, conversation with them. But but it is difficult because, I mean, every test we do, every every lab or imaging we order is money in the system. And, I mean, that's the kind of the assessment is most screening tests that we do up to a certain age um, is really not useful. Yeah, exactly. We're not, we're not and, helping things. So. Exactly. And, and one of the, the amazing campaigns that um, is just kind of, blew up the choosing wisely campaign which i think is fantastic kind of emphasizing that as well too you know like we have to make sure that we're proper stewards of the the tests that we choose to do um um on our patients uh and um we have to make sure that we're doing the interventions that up that are have the evidence-based applications right or have the evidence for actually affecting outcomes or so so whether that's annual whether that's biannual we don't really you know it's going to change based on the person and yeah you know what like it's not to say that there's something wrong i don't want to say that there's something wrong with seeing your patients once a year but you, you know what i mean like we have to make sure that we're doing those evidence-based interventions right and for some people that might be every two years that might be every six months you, you know we have to make sure that we're doing those evidence-based interventions whether we we try to put them together in some type of uh, a periodic health assessment or periodic health evaluation every X many months or years. That's another that's another topic or so, right? But this whole idea of the annualized examination for uh, you know what I mean is 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 I think um, you know I, I I I yeah it's I think that's something back in the seventies, eighties, and nineties, and that's and you know that's what we want to be cautious of as well too and stuff that applying interventions without evidence. Um, and that's really what the Choosing Wisely campaign talks about is making sure that we're making sure that we're ordering tests and the and uh, um, the tests that we order actually have appropriate evidence for them, right? Because you can get back a result and it can cause people more problems than what it's worth, right? So basically, um, periodic health assessment, definitely. Um, um, for some people that might be a year, for some people that might be a couple years or a few years, um, that's what you want to be doing. At. You want to make sure really that you understand what are the evidence-based interventions that you do in an adult that can make an actual difference with mortality.
um, 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 and, and morbidity or so, right? And not every test you slap on the lab requisition is going to actually affect mortality. You may end up getting a result back that actually more causes more problems than good. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the PC route uh, podcast did a good talk recently on probably the most ubiquitous test we do, which is a CBC. Oh, the CBC. Um, exactly. I love for, it. Order a CBC. CBC for screening. Let's order a CBC. Yeah. When we when we have no idea and we want to make ourselves, you know, sound like, well, we'll check your CBC today and make sure everything's yeah. okay with your absolute eosinophil count. And then, you know, I'll reassure you some more, right? You know what I mean? Yeah. I think the thing with that... Yeah, if we're going to be honest about it, probably it's not even we're doing it as a kind of lazy screening test. It's just an automatic checkbox on the form. I know, exactly. It's like, of course we're going to do a CBC. You you, yeah. you have someone in your office, do a CBC, right? You admit yeah. somebody from the hospital, do a CBC, right? Like, it's fantastic, right? Repeat that CBC daily during the course of their hospital admission and then wonder why they're getting so anemic all the time, right? <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. So I think we need to get away from that exactly like you said. It's the targeted interventions and especially the targeted labs, I would say, because it's it's really easy to check a box. Exactly. Um, when the threshold's that low, they tend to get over-ordered. Exactly. And and when we're talking about any of this screening stuff, too, I think it's we've got to say right off the bat, it's uh, we've talked about this before with screening, but um, it doesn't, none of this pertains to higher risk populations. So if there's a significant family history and none of this pertains to people with signs or symptoms. Perfect. Perfect. And so that's a totally different thing. Exactly. And I'm glad you mentioned that point. The world's sexiest man, Dr. Brady Bouchard, the king of Western <laughs> man, Canada. You're, you're really making the editing hard. The, the king of Western Canada. I'm glad you mentioned it. Keep in mind, we are talking about screening. So the, the, by definition, people are asymptomatic, right? And they're otherwise low risk, right? This is not somebody with, you know, two first degree relatives with colon cancer at 36 years old who presents in your office, right? That's a totally different bag of worms. We are talking about the person with no symptoms and with no potentially no risk factors um, 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 for early aggressive disease or so when we're talking about screening and we're talking about making sure we know what those evidence-based interventions are. And as the world's sexiest man, Dr. Brady Bouchard, the integrator, the man who scored an A++ in calculus in high school, Brady Bouchard so eloquently just said, we have to make sure that we're doing evidence-based interventions. And that applies to both of our physical exam maneuvers as well as our laboratory investigations that we order and stuff. And, you know, just even spending a moment because, you know, a lot of what we talk about, as you said, is based on laboratory. But how well does physical exam perform? Like, what would you guess, Brady Bouchard, like in terms of how well physical exam performs? So like we, we, like how many spleens did you palpate, Dr. Bouchard, this past week? Yeah, well, I mean, you'd get some physicians angry because there's definitely a movement towards back to the, to the physical exam. But I think, um, if we're going to be honest, a lot of us, our, our clinical exam skills are not up to par because we don't do it enough. Um, and especially in the context of screening, I think it's extremely low yield. Exactly, um, exactly. If there's, if there's signs or symptoms of disease, absolutely. Um, but for screening, no. Exactly, exactly. So it's kind of interesting, you know, like when you look at physical exam maneuvers, um, they had an excellent case series on this and stuff on, you know, the evidence-based clinical exam and stuff done a few years ago, actually talking about the sensitivity and specificity of a number of clinical maneuvers. Um, you will actually find out that most of the stuff we do as part of our physical exam are actually kind of crap in 
terms of sensitivity and specificity for picking up a lot of conditions. Um, it's not to say that we shouldn't do them. It's not to say that they shouldn't be part of our assessment. Um, one of the things um, you could make an argument for is that should we be um, using emerging technologies like ultrasound as part of our physical exam assessment routinely or so and getting trained up in that appropriately so that we can combine that with our physical assessment and do some POCUS point of care ultrasound, um, 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 you know, might that potentially increase our diagnostic yield? But I definitely agree with Dr. Bouchard that it, especially when you're considering an asymptomatic low risk population, um, you know, the chance that you're going to be feeling, you're going to be feeling and be able to discern on clinical exam a slightly enlarged spleen. Not all, not all of us can have the same clinical abilities as sexy Dr. Brady Bouchard. He, he feels spleens all the time. He can look at an yeah, abdomen yeah. and tell you if the spleen is enlarged. Isn't that not correct, Dr. Bouchard? I totally could. Exactly. Um, but you make a really good point about ultrasound, Mike. Is, and I think, as you know, as medicine progresses, I, I would hope, especially in medical school, that ultrasound replaces the stethoscope as the first, kind of first step for, for uh, investigating or listening into the body. Exactly. Um, because for, for almost everything, uh, the ultrasound outperforms stethoscope. If you're trying to listen to the lungs or the heart or the abdomen or, you know. Perfect, perfect. And, and it's going to be great as time goes on that people, um, as as we all get more competent in, in using ultrasound, and ultrasound kind of becomes more of the the everyday, you know, it, it integrates into sort of everyday practice. Um, you know, you're going to see things change. You know, um, um, I, I'm a firm believer in that, that, you know, in five, 10 years, you know, our, our periodic health assessments are going to look different, a whole lot different with sort of routine um, usage of the ultrasound or so, and probably be a lot higher yield, you know, and probably make the stethoscope be a, a doctor necklace. You know what I mean? So perfect. So talking about it, excellent article two months ago in Canadian Family Physician on the X on the periodic health assessment by Dr. Mervipolis in Ottawa. It gives a nice, excellent summary of yeah. in adults the periodic health assess uh, um, um, assessment, um, as well as the evidence and stuff. And I strongly recommend maybe we can put it in the show notes as well. Um, um, I strongly recommend people use that because it's kind of like one of the for adults kind of one stop shopping right now keep in mind this is for people who this um this is for screening right so asymptomatic people who are otherwise low risk this is not your person who comes inside with two first degree relatives with colon cancer 35 right so just just to make that distinction but it has like sort of this really really nice table and stuff and it kind of goes through all the interventions right and where we have the most evidence for what interventions that we do do you have it up there dr bouchard the sexy dr bouchard yeah, no, that, no, that was a beautiful little summary. And um, now that I pull it up and look at it again, uh, what I really liked was um, the layout of their their charting tool. So not just the guidelines, um, which was summarized beautifully as well, um, but a nice um, you know charting tool as you go through it with the visit um, that ho hopefully will be built into EMRs in the next little while. Perfect, perfect. And it also as well too has a nice little. Um, later on in the article, a very, very nice little, um, like sheet that can be used to summarize as well as it looks like it can be incorporated into an EMR um, that you can put patient data in, inside of it. So yeah. fantastic stuff. And I like the fact that it puts all that information out there for us. So let's go through and we can talk about, we can talk about, you know, each one of these things or so. So kind of starting from the beginning, kind of stratifies people. 
according to, you know, 21 to, to almost 50, and then from 50 to 64, 65, and then greater than age greater than 65. So kind of your classic sort of, you know, disease prevention stuff. So smoking cessation, definitely super important. Get people off cigarettes at any age. Um, alcohol cessation to low risk guidelines, so under 10. Um, in females under 15 drinks a week in males, pretty standard stuff there. Um, nice thing on physical exercise, 150 moderate to intense activity per week as a cumulative uh, total. And that's pretty consistent, um, throughout all the age strata so far. Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. We got some diet, of course, some dietary goodness. Um, basically yeah, some low salt, low salt. Kind of essentially your Mediterranean diet. Remember there was some evidence for that. Nice big study came out a couple of years ago and talked about that. You know what I mean? The Mediterranean sort of diet. So diet high in, in, uh, in fruits and veggies, um, certain types of oil, limiting red meat, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, keeping it under about two grams a day in salt. Um, yeah. Have you, uh, read, uh, Michael Pollan at all? Yes, I have. Yeah. His, his quote that I use with patients all the time, because I'm like, keep it simple, and it, and it works in my mind anyways to think about it, was, you know, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. Exactly. So, I, I mean, like that. I, I think the biggest, the biggest problem we have by far, um, in my opinion, as a non-dietitian uh, or nutritionist, is um, just the quantity, the amount of food we eat. So you can, I mean, you can, you can eat terrible quality food. Um, and it's not going to be great for you, um, but you'll generally maintain a relatively healthy weight if you don't eat too much of it, if you don't eat too much of anything. Um, and it's it's the quantity of food that really gets us, I think. Exactly, exactly. And it really kind of points out two serving sizes. And we live sort of in a yeah. mega size, you know, you go anywhere and stuff and, you know, mega size this and super size that. And, and that's, uh, that's really detrimental and stuff. So portion control is definitely very, very important, right? But I like that. I like that Brady Bouchard. Bouchard eat food, not too much, and mostly plants. Right? Um, so fantastic. You could probably even add a caveat to to that too, and try to keep your red meat intake to an, a minimum or so. Right? So, um, yeah. um, and it's trying to make those practical changes too, um, um, to make sure that you know it is okay to have a little dessert now and then. Um, we have to be realistic with things because we are human beings. Um, but for that weight maintenance and stuff, I think that's really really sound advice. You don't want to have dessert four times a day. Yeah. Next one's really topical in, in Australia where I trained, but the uh, slip, slop, slap, sunscreen and protective clothing for sun exposure. Yeah. Perfect. Good evidence for that as well, too. You know what I mean? Remember, um, skin cancer is one of the most co most common cancers out there, right? And I, I find oftentimes, too, as part of my periodical health, for whatever reason, it's the one I tend to forget the most, right? Like, we don't remember things like sun protection, right? Remember, there's okay. evidence that it's it's probably the skin damage that you obtain as a young person that probably affects your skin cancer risk later on, right? So, so again, yeah. you know, we should be uh, we should be making sure that uh, patients are informed of that or so, right? That they can make uh, that they can uh, make those uh, those healthy uh, decisions. Of course, what else is next here? Sexual activity, so safe sex and STI, safe sex and STI counseling, also uber, uber important and stuff. And that's pretty well maintained um, through all the um, age groups or so. This is a bit different for me, Mike. They, they mentioned in here um, screening annually yeah. if they're sexually active in the kind of younger age groups. I've always had a three monthly in my mind, and I don't know where that came from. Yeah. Um, 
how often do you like if you have young especially young adults who are sexually active how often do you advise them to get screened well and that's the thing it depends really on your risk right like like i I, you know i have heard guidelines before mention every three months i have screened people up to every you know sometimes two months and stuff because they're you know they might engage in very very high risk sexual behavior so i think it's more it's 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 increasing important to, to, to 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 ascertain from your patients what their level of risk is right how many partners do they have per year does that make sense yeah, so no, if they're having right. three, four, five partners per year, then that's going to necess- necessitate further, um, um, more testing or so, right? So again, you know, even though the guideline talks about sort of, you know, um, chlamydia and gonorrhea annually, um, I think that you have to take a more personalized approach and kind of really assess how many partners do as, does an individual have in the course of a year. If someone has, you know, three to four partners or four to five partners per year, you're going to test them more than once a year, potentially. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. Perfect, right? And I don't think it's I, I don't think it's something that, you know, at age fifty years old, if again if that person has lots of partners, does that make sense? Um uh, um um it, it's gonna affect the frequency of your testing or so. Next up the physical exam is pretty much the only things that on um, physical exam that we found are worthwhile. Um and I guess you could lump in here even though they don't do do that. Um blood pressure is is by far the main and most effective intervention on physical exam. Yeah. Um, and I count cervical cancer screening in there because it, I mean, it really is kind of an exam, even though it's kind of a lab test, Exactly. Um, but they, but they mentioned in here, height, weight, um, BMI, waist circumference, um, only if you can refer to, or have availability of structured behavioral interventions, really blood pressure, right? Um, height, weight, BMI. Um, um, all those important, it's interesting how, you know, all the wonderful stuff that we have sort of ingrained in our physical examination, like auscultating the chest and the lungs and feeling bellies and blah, 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 blah. It didn't really make the cut, right? As, as actually evidence-based interventions that actually improve outcomes in asymptomatic yeah. people, right? So it really kind of goes, goes to show that it's not to say the physical exam is bad. Um, but you know, you kind of wonder it's, 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 it's the things that we have the most evidence for are really kind of basic sort of vital signs sort of singing and things that we can get objective measurements for. And there's probably a bit too much subjectiveness and interoperative variation with the average clinical exam, right? Especially with the low-risk yeah. person. I'm, I can't be as, as, as high fidelity in terms of my splenic examinations as Dr. Brady Bouchard. What's it called? Trobe space? Do you remember where trobe space is, Dr. Bouchard? Oh, God, no, man. Oh, don't ask me physical exam stuff. <laughs> you love trobe space. Stop denying. No. Stop hating on the tropes. Stop no, I hating love, on I, Castells. I love, I love ultrasound. I'll give you that. But not there you go. I love ultrasound too, Doctor Bouchard. I can see Trove's spleen. <laughs> you, you can go. see the spleen. No, but it's it's just to outline that I really think that in the next little bit, you are actually going to see a a lot more ultrasound being used as part uh, uh um integrated a lot more into primary care. Right. Um. There's one intervention that we're going to get to in a little bit and stuff. Um. Triple A screening. Right. So imagine if you can yeah, use exactly. something like that and using your ultrasound modality. Um. Um. Make sure that you get the appropriate training um, and make sure that uh, um, people are credentialed, it would be kind of interesting because you could you could potentially do some of that screening for your office. So definitely, um, definitely on the horizon. Yeah, and much cheaper too. Like that that abdominal ultrasound um, screening uh, recommendation when we do get there would would change um, dramatically. I think if we had uh, ultrasound in primary care in general. Yeah, no, no, no. You can definitely um, um, once ultrasound is integrated into our everyday clinical exam, I think you're going to, I think you're going to see our ability to discern different things clinically improve a lot. Uh, so they talk about, uh, the investigations and screening tests. So cognitive screening, 
Um, screen if a family member is concerned. Memory complaints should be evaluated and followed to assess progression. Um, yeah, I think that's, I, I'd suggest that's probably a key thing in primary care that we don't necessarily pick up on as much, or I don't. Um, if people are complaining of memory issues, um, you don't need to, you know, go full bore with it right now, but you need to make a note of it in the, in the clinical, in your clinical visit and make sure you're seeing them somewhat regularly to make sure that doesn't progress in it. You know, cause often people have kind of short-term memory issues or, or something that's not a predictor of, of more ominous, um, cognitive issues. Um, but you want to be able to sort, sort of, sort those out. Yeah, no, no, that's definitely, uh, definitely very, very true and stuff. You know, I like the fact too, if they said a family member's concerned as well too, right? So they, they specifically put that in there, right? Because you may get from a, from a loved one, from a family member that, you know, this person could potentially have, be having some memory issues and it could have, you know, variable impacts on that person's functioning. So, but, um, is there any evidence for broad based population level screening? No, it's kind of like your spider sense tarts tingling when um your spider sense really starts to tingle when when you, you know the person is either concerned about their memory or a loved one um, um is concerned about their memory as well so and they throw in the f word which is falls because when you fall you can break your hip and 25 percent of the time people die yeah. So that is an important one, especially in that under 65, uh, over 65 category, right? Um, um, we know the prevalence, exactly. We know the prevalence of things like osteoporosis is a bit higher. Um, um, definitely, um, um, higher at that age group. And you want to make sure you're screening from falls. I like the get up and go test. You know what I mean? And stuff as sort of one of the biggest risk factors for falls is actually dementia and muscle weakness, right? So just generalized muscle weakness. Lots of other contributing factors as well, too. Um, vestibular issues, um, neuropathies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But you want to kind of, you want to kind of make sure that you have, um, um, a structured way if there is a concern, um, 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 or if you find out during your clinical assessment that people are falling falling you want to make sure that you check that out for sure yeah and if, if if they are at risk of falls other than managing their falls risk specifically um i think that in itself would be an indication for for osteoporosis screening for for a bmd yeah um because really the fall isn't necessarily the problem it's the it's the quality of the fall exactly the fractures exactly exactly it's the fact that you can get a fracture very well said dr bouchard it also puts in wonderful world of diabetes we spoke about this before um, you know, um, using some type of risk. So they're kind of moving away from, you know, kind of strict sort of age cutoffs. They do list those things, but using either your can risk or your fin risk score to decide on whether or not you're going to screen. Um, 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 so using your can risk or your fin risk score to decide on that, uh, on that, uh, level of screening. And it also tells you based on that risk scoring system, when is your screening actual interval itself? We spoke about that. Holy crap a lot when we talk about diabetes, Dr. Bouchard. We won't get into it too, too much today, but just keep in mind, use a validated risk, um, calculator and it'll tell you what your actual, um, um, um risk is as well as recommend a, a potential, um, screening interval. So for some people at very high risk, it'd be every year. For some people at much lower risk, it's every three to five years. Yeah, exactly. And the diabetes, like we mentioned before, the diabetes screening, um, does have an age cutoff right now. I, I'm guessing they'll probably move 
more towards this, yeah. you know, risk assessment. Exactly. Because um, it seems more appropriate to me. Exactly. Exactly. And stuff. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and they do. They do still have, uh, they do still have age, uh, age cutoffs and stuff. But practically speaking, I'm finding a lot more people are using the validated risk scores and stuff because it gives a much more comprehensive assessment and not just basing it on risk. You know, there's a lot of 41 year olds that have the bodies of 25 year olds, but there's a lot of 30 year olds that potentially have the bodies of 60 year olds. Right. So you have to yeah, make absolutely. sure that you can consider that with some sort of validated risk school to determine what the risk is and your screening interval my friend the same thing still kind of applies to lipids as well too some type of risk assessment um remember the lipids guidelines say screen men above 40 women above um 50 but the provided these are for low risk individuals right this is not the person who had an mi two years ago right like this they do not yeah. fall into this sort of uh, category and use a validated risk assessment tool like your framingham or so to also determine risk yeah beautiful perfect um, vision is kind of a new one to me because I don't think we do it in primary care often and we just kind of assume people have seen an optometrist at, at some point. Um, but they're mentioning in the lower age groups, so the 19 to 40 every 10 years, um, over that every five years, um, and unless you're high risk or there's specific issues, I mean, especially diabetes and hypertension, um, should probably be screened a little bit sooner. Um, they mention also African-American or high myopia in there as well. Perfect. Excellent. I think that's a very, very good point and stuff too, because I think we sometimes, you know, I agree with that totally of all our preventative health maneuvers. I think vision is the one that we kind of, you know, unfortunately kind of cognitively sort of put at the wayside. You know, we're, we're pretty good on lipids. We're pretty good at diabetes, those types of things, obesity, osteoporosis, some of the cancer screening stuff, but I'm glad they put it in there. Right. Um, 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 vision and stuff, because I do have a tendency to forget about that. And it's vitally important. Dr. Bouchard. Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. And then we get into some of the cancer screening, some colon cancer screening. So interesting. That went through a, re a recent uh, um, um, change and stuff. So, um, so you know, beginning at around 50 years old, um, flex sig, right? So not necessarily doing a colonoscopy in the low risk, uh, um, in the truly low risk person, right? Um, remember how colonoscopy was listed before as a screening option as well, too. So that's been uh, that's been recently removed and stuff. So FOBT or the immunohistochemical testing, um, you know, every couple of years. Yeah, absolutely. And I, the rationale around that was that a flexible SIG is, is a reasonable screening test yes. because that's the, the region of your, of your, where most people get cancer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that, and that on balance that, you know, it's both cheaper um, and there's a lower risk of, of perforation of complications with it. So perfect. So sounds reasonable. Perfect and stuff. So, so yeah. So colonoscopy, um, um, you, you know, it's, it's not that it's a bad test, but it's, it's more for higher risk states, right? People with risk factors, those types of, uh, uh, those types of things, you know, Osteoporosis, so uh, screen women and men once greater than 65 years. Um, if they're younger than that, you can screen based on risk factors, um, which Perfect. I think everybody kind of learns in residency. We don't need to rehash here. Um, probably the the big one to, to know and to never miss is um, long use of, of steroids. I, I'm very happy you mentioned that, Dr. Bouchard, because I find that that one is the one that people tend to forget about. Um, you know, and, and keep in mind, cumulative steroid doses can be quite high. If you have someone with bad COPD or, or, and they're constantly on steroids or, you know, there's 
you know, lots of conditions and stuff where people are on steroids and they get a taper and they go steroids and they get a taper and stuff. Your actually cumulative dose of steroids over the course of a year can be high, right? So keep in mind, um, that person is at risk of osteoporosis and stuff, right? And keep in mind, it's, 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 you know, things are moving from like age based cutoffs to kind of looking at integrative screen, like looking at, 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 uh, at, at, at a combination of risk factors and stuff to decide, you know, it's not just with osteoporosis, it's not just the T-score, but it's actually looking at, uh, I'm, I'm taking both the T-score as well as patient characteristics to come up with a cumulative risk of fracture. So perfect. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, the Osteoporosis Canada guidelines uh, mention greater than 7.5 milligrams uh, daily for three months of prednisone equivalent. So that's not a very high dose at all. Exactly, exactly. And you can imagine, like, I've had patients with bad COPD, and even though they're not really on steroid tapers anymore, we don't do that too, too much um, um, anymore. They might get so many exacerbations, they get close to that over the course of a year, right? So yeah, you, have to be, um, you have to be, uh, you have to be extra careful. Beautiful. Immunizations, of course. Tetanus, acellular pertussis, HPV, MMR, depending on your age, um, strata. So very, very good. Remember your delayed immunization schedule, folks. Um, that can come into, uh, that can come into play as well. So just, uh, just to keep that in mind. Um, um, so immunizations that, uh, that do have evidence base, uh, an evidence basis for them for affecting outcomes. Beautiful. Perfect. Even in the older, um, I mean, people as they age and stuff, um, definitely influenza, you know, like even though it doesn't have as much of a recommendation for young people, like still give it, you understand? Like it's, it's, it's strongly, strongly push the, uh, the flu shot. You know what I mean? Um, as people get older and stuff as well, the zoster, um, vaccination can become, uh, somewhat useful. I was just looking up the, well, the next one on there and the family planning one. Um, this is one I uh, glanced over before and obviously missed, but they mentioned folic acid um, for all women of childbearing age. Yeah, and, I, and I'm not sure. I mean, I always make sure to mention it when I when I remember to, to be honest. Um, just mentioning it to women because it's not necessarily common knowledge um, that you know if you're going to try to get pregnant or you think you might get pregnant or you're not using contraception, um, you should be on folic acid at least three months before conceiving, if possible. Um, and for the first three months of pregnancy afterwards. But um, here I was trying to pull up the, it's from the U.S. Preventative Task Force that they got this and I'll have to have a look um, and maybe put it in the show notes. But they recommend it, it sounds like th throughout the childbearing years, which seems like it could get expensive, especially for someone who's never going to have kids or no, has no plans to have kids. Exactly, exactly, and stuff, and and that's the kind of that's the kind of thing you have to um you have to bear in mind. Um, that's the type of thing you have to bear in mind as well too. Um, they also make a recommendation for rubella serology. You know, if someone's planning to get pregnant or 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 um you know could get pregnant. I think you know if the person is like, listen, I'm taking. I really do not want to get pregnant right now. I'm on a couple forms of birth control. You understand? Yeah, um, and I cannot afford the folic acid. Remember now too, isn't there one birth control pill that actually automatically has the folic acid in there now and stuff built into the birth control pill and stuff i forget the um i forget oh, the, yeah i forget the name oh. of it but i believe there's one with some folic acid in there and some iron in there and stuff as well too i might be totally mistaken but um yeah i think it's i think it's important that we that we keep that in mind right you know it's yeah. like vision testing right we're kind of like oh yeah you know what i mean we we need to make sure that uh, that women are appropriately um, um supplemented especially if they're trying to get pregnant Oh, Mike, you're a genius. I haven't even heard of this yet. It's Yaz, Yaz with the folate, and it's called Biaz. Biaz, wow. Yes, there you go. <laughs> there you go. In, ca in, in case the Yasmin doesn't work and you get pregnant. <laughs> 
There you go. I learned something again from Mike today. I've learned something every oh day. Oh my god. Oh my god. I've never used it. I just I remember being somewhere and then mentioning it that they're starting to, you know, put iron in some oral contraceptive pills and put some uh put some folic acid in there as well too. I've never used the stuff. Um yeah. but yeah, it definitely you want to make sure that women are appropriately counseled to getting folic acid or to be informed of the of the benefits of taking folic acid. Yeah. So I was just looking while you're talking there, I was looking at that task force website and it's a grade a recommendation for all yeah. childbearing women at any time they could possibly become pregnant so that's there you uh, go that's, that's new to me i guess there you go you learn something new every day isn't that yeah. true dr brady bouchard yeah exactly see dr brady bouchard learn something new every single day I'm, I'm just thinking the implications of that that means man like of the population i work with i'd have like literally half of our population at least would be on a on a prescription every day there you go. Hmm, I don't know. There you go. Yeah, and then cervical cancer screening. The age of first screening seems to be rising. Going up. I remember when it used to be 21 years old. Um, um, it's now up to 25 years old and stuff if you're sexually active and stuff. And you're getting screened by a pap every three years. And you can stop at about age 70 or so, right? Um, um, especially if you had three normal paps in the last 10 years. So again, cervical cancer screening, very, 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 very important and stuff. Perfect. So it's kind of these targeted interventions that actually have proven mortality benefit, right? So when I look at the periodic health examination, that's what I'm looking at. What are the targeted interventions that have proven mortality benefit? Yeah. And things to look out for uh, with that cervical cancer screening, um, HPV screening as an alternative um, to pap uh, testing is is kind of in the works. It may or may not happen, and, and they're trying to figure out intervals. I know in Australia they're working on that right now. Um, the idea being that almost all uh, cervical cancers come from the, the, uh, the carcinogenic um, HPV strains, and so that if, you're, if you test negative throughout your 20s, that you have a very low risk of cervical cancer throughout your life, and maybe you could have a longer interval. Exactly, exactly. And then, remember, they had done some studies and stuff looking at that, like if you were HPV negative and stuff, and you had truly a negative path, then maybe your screening interval could be longer, right? Yeah, you know, I, I, I think that's in areas of active investigation and stuff, you know, areas of active um, 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 investigation that they're looking at right now and stuff. Is there truly like an ultra, ultra low risk trade? Because keep in mind, cervical cancer mortality has been going down in the last 50 years, right? So yeah, yeah exactly. No, that's fair enough. Perfect. And of course, breast cancer as well too. Mammogram every two years, starting at age fifty. You can stop at age seventy-five. Yeah, um, and man, that would be opening up a kettle of worms. Um, the, the breast cancer screening study—is that the one that looked at starting screening at forty? No, the the big one that said that mammogram wasn't useful. The sixty-five well, thousand women. And that's what I'm saying. That's I'm yeah. glad you mentioned that too. Yeah. You know what I mean, and stuff. It's it's because. You know, if you look at some of the evidence for actually screening in terms of using mammography to screen, it's not a great screening test. Does that make sense? Yeah, um, absolutely. um, it's not an, a great screening test at all, right? Um, 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 you know, it's one of these things that is, that is built into our sort of our lexicon of screening maneuvers that we do and screening tests that we do offer to people. But as far, you know, as comparing it to other screening tests, 
it's it's not that good. You know what I mean? And stuff. Um, one of the examples I remember using in the past before is that um, in years gone by, they would have prostate cancer screening, right? By via PSA. And yeah. that's been basically, you know, the, 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 the nail is in the coffin for that. You know what I mean? And stuff um, um, for using PSA as a screening uh, tool for prostate cancer. Not really, not really very good. Um, you know, if you look at mammography in terms of breast cancer screening, it's not that mammography does a whole lot better than that. Right. It is better than that in terms of a screening test, but it's not a whole, whole lot better. Right. So, again, you know, it's 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 uh, it's, um, you know, definitely one of these areas of discussion. Yeah. And uh, the name of the study escapes me at the moment. But and I, I remember reading that the summary in there was essentially that the reason that mammogram maybe isn't as useful as it was previously is that remember with a screening test that the only reason for having a screening test is if early intervention changes the the outcome outcome exactly and, and that we've gotten quite good at treating breast cancer um, exactly and so delayed diagnosis isn't isn't affecting mortality as much as it used to exactly exactly and that's a very very good point you know that's and i'm glad you mentioned that dr bouchard you know it's 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 you catch things early if by catching them early, um, you can apply an intervention that has proven efficacy that works, right? Yeah. Um, that, that introducing that delay results in a clinical progression of that particular condition to a state where it makes it much more hard to treat. That's a very good point. We're getting very good at treating certain breast cancers fairly early, right? So that's the, um, that's the, um, that's the thing that you want to keep in mind and be aware of, right? So again, in terms of population, mortality reduction you know it's one of these things that's not you know it's 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 uh it's 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 not a magic bullet mammography for breast cancer screening by any stretch of the imagination yeah and that breast cancer screening study now that um i found it that's why i didn't remember the name because it's kind of unremarkable it's the canadian national breast screening study and the 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 somewhat controversial paper that came out uh, two years around that that saying that mammography wasn't uh as beneficial as we thought um, was the 25-year follow-up for breast cancer incidence and mortality for the Canadian National Breast Cancer Screening Study. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Exactly. So again, you know, not a magic bullet in terms of um, it's something that we do and it's what the guideline recommends, but not a magic bullet. Um, I mean, it's important to, to be aware of what the evidence shows, not a magic bullet in terms of picking up um, um, breast cancer for sure or yeah. ch- changing its mortality. So very good points. Again, a couple new ones. There's one actually here that's mentioned in their AAA screen. There's another one that was actually just about for smoke for for low CT scan for smokers, right? Oh, so you took the words out of my mouth. I was just going to say this article is already out of date because the lung cancer thing I came know, out just after. I know. It. Exactly. So I definitely like the AAA screen, right? So, um, um, abdominal ultrasound, um, you see a single, a single scan, um, 65 to 70 in patients who have ever smoked, right? So it's just a single, and you're screening for AAA in that particular point, right? So I'm not going to dwell too, too much on that. We have, we have evidence for that. And think in mind, the ultrasound scan, this is not a abdo ultrasound. It's going to tell you every, this is a targeted ultrasound screen. Does that make sense? You're basically just looking at the aorta and stuff because, um, um, you're basically just looking at the aorta and stuff in that population what else did the canadian task force just recommend around lung cancer screening dr brady bouchard that didn't see reflected in the article um but it's actually brand new i think it was just came out like within the last couple of months or so yeah and i I really enjoy the task force and, and like the work they do um because the history of this is that the only lung cancer screening guideline there was was the u.s preventative task force which said 
you know, maybe do it, maybe not. Um, it yeah. was kind of equivocal on it. Um, and there was no specific Canadian guideline around it. What they've come out with, which I think is a very rational approach, was um, you can do a low-dose CT for adults age 55 to 74 um, yeah. with at least a 30-pack year history um, yeah. and have quit less than 15 years ago. So, again, we're trying to find the slightly higher-risk ones. Um, and you can do annual screening up to three times, and then after that, you don't need to do it anymore. But um, the caveat they put in there was screening should only be done um, if you have expertise and follow up in the early diagnosis and treatment of that lung cancer. So, there if, you, you. so if, if you diagnose it early, um, you know, you need to have that follow up in order to make that screening useful. Perfect. Perfect. And, and yeah, and, and, and that's a perfect, that's a perfect point and stuff. I don't have anything to add on that. You've, you've covered that. You've covered that perfectly. And I'm glad the Canadian task force has actually recommended that, you know what I mean? And stuff, because now that we do have fancier CT scans, and it's interesting, if you actually read the whole guideline, they go into how many millisieverts of radiation. These are not, these are not your like CTPE protocols and stuff. These are dedicated, um, um, CTs that are low radiation. Um, um, so have a much, much lower cumulative radiation exposure than, um, than your, than your typical, um, CT scan. It gives cutoffs for, you know, what it considers a, a, a concerning nodule versus what it considers a more of a benign nodule and what the recommended follow-up should be and stuff, you know, um, what the recommended, uh, um, follow-up should, uh, should approach, um, uh, um, what your recommended follow-up should be or so. So definitely, Using low dose CT scan for screening for lung CA is part of our protocol as of now. But, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned at the centers, you know, does that mean that it's really only at cancer centers, these low dose? Yeah, I, I, th I think the point of it, Mike, is that you need to have access to, you know, access to that, uh, that further care. That so services, you, exactly. Yeah. So you don't, I mean, I, I guess in the rural setting or, or where you and I work, if you have a patient who definitely is not going to leave the community for treatment, if you come yeah, up with exactly. Um, then you're not going to you know, probably then, offer them. Yeah. Yeah. You're not going to do it. Yeah, exactly. It's done. Perfect. Always a pleasure, Dr. Brady Bouchard. You as well. Keep it real. It's always, it's always a pleasure. Beautiful. Take care. Bye, everybody. Bye.